Good morning. My name is Chad Donahoe. I'm the interim pastor here at Grace. And if I haven't met you personally, welcome. We are in a series on the minor prophets. Those are the last 12 books of the Old Testament. And this week we are in Zechariah, not to be confused with Zephaniah. Okay, so even this morning, if I ever say Zephaniah, what I mean is Zechariah. Just do the translation work for me. So uh, Zechariah is between Haggai and Malachi, if that helps. But before we dive into uh, Zechariah, and it'll be uh, specifically, I'll read from chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. Before we get there, I want to do a quick orientation and, uh, on the Minor Prophets, and, and I do mean quick for a couple of reasons. One is uh, I've been talking about the Minor Prophets throughout this whole series, and so, um, so a lot of what I'll say I'm just repeating. But also, uh, on our website, I'll mention this one last time, we attached a link to a friend of mine, a pastor in Omaha, Bob Thune, wrote a great little article on the Minor Prophets that gives some of the historical context. So feel free to read that. I think it's really helpful. But as far as a quick orientation, so think back to the Old Testament. Um, God was always faithful to his people. His people did not return the faithfulness. And so essentially it came to a point because they continued to break God's covenant over and over that you could say God put them in a significant timeout. We call this the exile. By the way, how many of you have ever been in timeout? I just want to see how many people have actually raised their hands. Anyway, um, so they are in, uh, God puts them in exile. He allows other nations to conquer them. So at first, we have the uh, kingdom of Israel in the north. God allows Assyria to conquer them, to exile them, scatter them among among other people groups. Next, we have uh, Judah in the south, the kingdom in the south. God raises up Babylon, takes Judah, exiles them to Babylon. Okay, so with the minor prophets, most of the minor prophets are speaking or ministering in this time period of uh, surrounding this exile. But because God is a God of grace, there's hope for God's people. God raises up Cyrus of Persia, who conquers Babylon, is now ruling over God's people. So it allows the remnant of exiles, about 50,000, to return back to Jerusalem, where God calls them to rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the walls uh, or, or the temple. Now, this is where the last three of our minor prophets come in, Haggai, Zechariah and Malachi. So they're ministering to this remnant that has returned to Jerusalem. Specifically, last week we looked at Haggai, who called God's people to get back to work, back to building the temple. And why? Because the temple was all about God's presence, his dwelling with his people, and there was a glorious future for this temple. Now, as we come to Zechariah, Zechariah overlapped with Haggai, and he is focusing on this remnant, but specifically that the promises of Psalm 46 will come true. And I don't even have time to unpack this. This is just bonus. Just some of the patterns or or some of the promises of Psalm 46, um, what the Israelites are longing for, will come true. If I could say it a different way that there's indeed a glorious future for God's people. 
So with that, uh, we'll be in Zechariah chapter 8, or at least I will read that, and then we'll jump back to the beginning. So as we come to the scripture, let me pray for our time. My prayers, uh, we'll take one of Paul's prayers, we'll make it our own, and this one is out of Colossians chapter 1. So Lord, as we come to your scriptures, I pray that you would fill us with the knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that we would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to you, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Pray that you would strengthen us with all power according to your glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. That is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Zechariah chapter 8, starting verse 1. And the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I'm jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Old men and old women shall sit again in the streets of Jerusalem, each with his staff in hand, because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. And together, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Okay, so Zechariah, 14 chapters in one Sunday. And I, uh, I love it when biblical commentators make the following statements. Zechariah is one of the most difficult books of the Old Testament. Here's another. Zechariah is the longest of the minor prophets. It's also perhaps the most difficult. And another. Most people find Zechariah an especially difficult read, even for a prophetic book. And another. Admittedly, there is much in chapters 9 through 14 that is difficult, if not possible to explain. Great. However... Certain ideas are rather clear. Yes. Thankfully, that is true. And here's what's clear in Zechariah. God's people are weary. They are discouraged. And they need hope. They are lamenting that evil seems to be triumphing over good. And then there's this key phrase in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 10 says this, for whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice. This day of small things, meaning God's people were discouraged that all these days seemed like days of small things. There was very little progress going on with the people of God in building the temple. There seemed to be very little progress in these glorious promises of hope of the earlier prophets. And God seemed to be distant from his people. I think at times we can relate. We may not be building a temple, right? But God has given us 
work to do. God has called us to things, lots of things, but much of life can feel so mundane. And it's easy to sweat the small stuff of life. It's easy for our lives just to get distracted and caught up in our own little worlds. It's easy to be discouraged because of the effects of sin in our own lives and the effects of sin around us. And so Zechariah is going to remind his people, both then and now for us, of our glorious God and a glorious future. What Zechariah makes clear is that God has not forsaken his people, but desires to bless his people. And the promise that we see in Zechariah is God will bless his people with this coming Messiah who will be a good shepherd and a good king. That becomes very clear throughout the book of Zechariah. So this morning, my hope and my prayer is that we will actually celebrate the fulfillment of this book and be reminded that our days are not days of small things. God is at work. Now, every commentator I know breaks, this, uh, breaks the book down of the 14 chapters into chapters 1 through 8, which includes some visions, and then chapters 9 through 14 with a special focus on the return of this king. And so what we're going to do this morning, we're going to take a helicopter approach. We're just going to do a flyover, right, uh, so we can cover this book. You know me, fear of missing out on the minor, minor prophets. I want to cover it all. I can't, 14 chapters, but helicopter flyover at times. We'll just hover over certain sections. That will be our approach. And so with that, let's begin back in Zechariah chapter 1. So what we know in verses one, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, that uh, this takes place in the second year of uh, Darius, the king of Persia. That's uh, the same of Haggai. Haggai also took place in the second year of Darius. And verse 2 says, The word came to the prophet Zechariah, verse 2, that the Lord is very angry with your fathers, meaning the previous, the previous generation that had turned their back on God, therefore God exiled them. But Zechariah gives a message for this remnant that's returned back to Jerusalem. Verse 3, he says, return to me. Okay, not just return to Jerusalem, return to me like with your heart. Don't be like your fathers. And thankfully, this remnant's response is, verse 6, they repented. So there's hope. And then we see this hope played out in a vision uh, or in a series of eight visions that all take place in one night. Okay, so with each of these visions, and this is going to be uh, run through chapters one through six, with each of these visions, God also sends an angel to help interpret these visions to Zechariah and to us, thankfully. So these visions are like, uh, these visions are like night vision goggles. Here's what I mean. So uh, recently, about a month ago, I, I went over to my neighbor's house. It was at night. Uh, we were t hanging out in his garage. Um, and, and think of his garage like a, a man cave. Okay. So we're talking, and at one point he's like, hey, check these out. So he hands me his pair of night vision goggles. 
So I try them on, I put them on, I look out into what was darkness, and everything is bright and completely lit up. It looked like a whole different world, except that it wasn't. It was the real world. It's just the real world that I couldn't see because of the darkness. What God is doing with the book of Zechariah and with these visions is he is giving us night vision goggles so that we can see through the darkness and have God's perspective on the future, this glorious future for God's people. So again, we're in a helicopter. We're going to start flying over these visions. So vision, the first vision in chapter 1, verse 7 through 17. Zechariah sees four horsemen. Angel explains that these horsemen are patrolling the earth, and what they find is that the earth is at rest. Oh, good, right? We like rest. No, not good. Because this rest is referring to these nations that oppose God's people, and they are at ease. So here's what God reveals. In chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah? against which you have been angry these 70 years, that 70 years of exile. Verse 13, and the Lord answered, gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem, for Zion, and I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry a little while, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts. My city shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. So God gives comforting, gracious Words that he has not forgotten the covenant that he established with his people. Anytime God talks about being jealous for his people, this is covenant language. He's jealous for his people. The second vision. This is uh, chapter 1, verses 8 through 21. In this vision, Zechariah sees four horns. Now, in the ancient Near East, a horn would represent military power and pride. Okay? Uh, the angel reveals in chapter 1, verse 19, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem, meaning these are the nations that have come against and oppressed God's people. What God reveals is that he is raising up for craftsmen, otherwise known as for other nations, who will uh, essentially cut off the horns of these other nations. So what God is reminding his people of here, think about the covenant that was established with Abraham. I will bless those who bless you. Those who curse you, I will curse. God has not forgotten his covenant. He will curse the nations who have oppressed God's people. Third vision, chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. In this vision, Zechariah sees a measuring line over Jerusalem. Okay, this vision, the measuring line, this vision is about God's protection over and presence with 
his people. Now, recall that when the remnant returned from Babylon back to Jerusalem to rebuild the, to rebuild the temple, Jerusalem no longer had walls to protect it because Babylon had destroyed the walls. But look at what the angel reveals in chapter 2, verse 4. Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord. And I will be the glory in her midst. So just three promises here. The first one is that this city will continue to grow. It'll continue to expand beyond the walls. And what we know is that in Hebrews chapter 11, the Old Testament saints looked forward to this city, this country, this inheritance of God's people. So this is a vision of this glorious future city filled with people who come to know the Lord. The second one, God promises to be a wall of fire around them. And have we seen that before in the Old Testament? There's actually a few references, but one that readily comes to mind is think of the Exodus when God was a wall around his people to protect them from the pursuing army of Pharaoh. God is committed to protect his people. And the third one is God's glorious presence will again dwell with his people. And when it talks about people, verse 8, there's this interesting phrase. God refers to them as the apple of his eye. His covenant people are the apple of his eye. It's a term of endearment. It comes from actually Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 10, that, and that's, uh, that pictures God encircling them like an eagle, encircling his people with his eye kept on them, caring for them. Fourth vision, chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. In this vision, we have Joshua the high priest. Now remember, high priest would be the one in charge of making atonement, bringing people uh, before God, making atonement, cleansing them for their sins before a holy God. High priest of the temple, Joshua, standing before the angel of the Lord, but he's in filthy garments, which means he's unclean, sinful. Satan is standing next to him, accusing him. What do we know from Revelation 12? Satan is referred to as the deceiver of the saints, but also the accuser of them, deceives into sin and then accuses us of being unworthy. So Joshua with Satan next to him. And catch the ramification here. Joshua, the high priest, represents the people of God. If he is unclean, that means he is unworthy in God's presence. And if the high priest is unworthy in God's presence, that means the rest of the people are going to be unworthy in God's presence. But look at chapter 3, verse 4. Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And who does this point to? Yes, this points to Jesus. Gets even better. There's this promise in chapter 3, verse 8. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch, capital B, the branch, 
This goes on, verse 9. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. So this branch, capital B, shows up also at other places in Scripture. Namely, Isaiah chapter 4, verse 2. Jeremiah 23, verse 5. Jeremiah 33, verse 15. And then Zechariah will also go on to talk about this branch in Zechariah chapter 6, verse 12, where Zechariah says, For he shall branch out from, his, from this place, he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. So here's what's significant about the branch. This is a title for a Messiah. But the scriptures combine these two realities of a king as well as a priest in this vision of this Messiah. And so what we have is a priest who will make a perfect sacrifice, a once and for all sacrifice by way of the cross. And this is a king who will provide perfect rule over his people. Some have referred to, uh, to this as the gospel according to Zechariah. And it's because of the work of the branch, think about it, that because of our sin, Satan could accuse us all day long. And he can. But the truth of the matter is, because of the work of Christ, because of the work of this branch, there is, according to Romans 8, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. The very beginning of Romans 8, the end of Romans 8, there is no separation from his love because of Christ. The fifth vision, chapter 4, verse 1 through 14, we have a vision of gold, a golden lampstand with two olive trees on the right of it and on the left of it. Okay, so this is a vision regarding the temple. And then Zechariah asked the question, what are these? The angel's answer is the point of this vision in chapter four, verse six. It says, not by might, nor by power, but my, by, but my, wow. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit says the Lord of hosts. So here's the question behind this vision. This, um, this work of the temple, how is it ever going to get completed? And the answer is not by might nor by power, but by his spirit. The answer is God will finish this work. And there's a reference here to Zerubbabel, who again, Zerubbabel is in the line of David the king. Also, we have mentioned in Zechariah, Joshua, the priest. So who will complete this work? It's a king and a priest in one person. Once again, this is Jesus. And you think about it. The question is, who will finish this work? What did Jesus cry out at the cross? It is finished. It is finished. He conquered sin. He conquered death. He conquered Satan. And he is still at work building a new temple. It's a spiritual temple. And he calls us to shine as his lampstands to a dark world. Again, 
not by our might nor by our power, but by his spirit at work within us. Vision six and seven deal with the removal of sin from the face of the earth. So the sixth vision, we have a vision of a flying scroll, okay? And that scroll represents the law of God, likely represents curses of God along with it because uh, chapter five, verse three says, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land for everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side and everyone who uh, swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. Okay, so let's think about what, uh, what's on this scroll and what this represents. So the Ten Commandments were summarized by Jesus as what? Love God, those are the first four commandments. Love your neighbor as yourself, right? Those are the last six commandments, five through 10. What we have in verse four are two representative commandments that are named. One is false swearing. Third commandment, which means failure to love God. The other one is stealing. Eighth commandment, failing to love neighbor. So the point of this is that this sin, all sin, this represents all sin, and it will all be judged. The next vision talks about the removal of this sin. So seventh vision, chapter five, verses five through 11. Let me pause. Let's take a break. How we doing? Helicopter's going. All right. Just, okay, here we go. Uh, are we on the seventh vision? Yes, we are. All right. Verses five through 11, chapter five, five through 11. This vision, we have a woman in a basket. And the angel explains, this is the iniquity of, in all the land. And then verse eight, this is wickedness. So wickedness is personified as a, as a woman, most likely, because at times one of the major sins of Israel that's named is the sin of spiritual uh, prostitution, running after other false gods. So what we find, though, this woman, wickedness, is carried away by two other women to the land of Shinar, otherwise known as Babylon. So make the connection. It was God's people who were exiled in Babylon. They have returned. God will bless them, and God is exiling, you could say, or banishing sin from the land, from the promised land. And Revelation 21, 27 says this, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, this promised land, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. The eighth vision and our last vision in chapter six, one through eight in this final vision, we see four horsemen. They're patrolling all corners of the earth, especially the north. And when we north, you know, do a little geography here, who are the enemies to the north? It was Assyria, Babylon, Persia. Patrolling the south as well, that would be Egypt. Verse 8 Behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. And the point is, God's spirit is rest means the enemy has been defeated. 
So all of these visions are meant to assure God's people that God indeed is sovereign and he is on the move. With God, there is no day of small things. Evil will have its day, but the day of the Lord is coming. That's Zechariah's message to his people. Now, the visions are over, and now we come to chapters 7 and 8. So I'll summarize these chapters. There's a question about fasting in these chapters. And here's what the remnant is asking. They're saying, okay, we fasted during these 70 years of exile while we were in Babylon as we lamented Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. Now that we're back in Jerusalem and the temple is being rebuilt, do we need to fast anymore? That's essentially the heart of chapters 7 and 8, that question. Now, do we need to fast? The Lord's response, were you fasting for me? See, the Lord sees the heart, sees the motivations of self-interest above the desire to please him. Essentially, God says, if you want my favor, then stop your empty ritual of fasting, just going through the motions, and actually embrace me and my law from the heart. And what does it mean to embrace God and his law from the heart? Well, turn from your sins and put your money where your mouth is. You could say, you know, if we want to be a little bit more biblical, put your, t- you know, put your, put your tithe where your tongue is, right? Not funny. Let's keep going. Um, put your money where your mouth is, and here's what that's going towards. Think about this same question in Micah, chapter 6, verse 8. The people were asking, what do you require of us, God? We give all these sacrifices. God says, here's what I require. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. We hear that echoed here in chapter 7, verse 8 through 10. Thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. See, this is the covenant faithfulness that God desires. A heart that is seeking him, but in seeking him, we truly love our neighbors sacrificially. Then chapter 8 opens up, with the reminder of God is our covenant-keeping God who desires to bless his people, to turn fasting into feasting. This is the section that I read this morning I opened up with. Three times in here, God says, I am jealous for my people. And then verse three, I have returned to Zion, this is God's holy mountain, and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and, and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. And again, keep in mind as we're talking about Jerusalem, this whole sit, this, um, this holy city, keep in mind Hebrews chapter 11, this reminder that the Old Testament saints stood on their tiptoes, as it were, looking in the horizon for this glorious new city, this spiritual city with the builder, of the foundation being God. 
Verse 7. Behold, I will save my people from the east country and the west country, meaning where the sun rises and where the sun sets and everywhere in between. Then verse 8. And they shall be my people and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. And speaking of his people... Chapter 8, verse 20 says, Peoples shall yet come from the nations of every tongue. And we see this fulfillment began at Pentecost, right? Acts chapter 2, when God pours out his Holy Spirit on his disciples. And this continues as we, as his disciples, continue to love our neighbors, share the gospel with our neighbors. And again, who's our neighbor? It's everyone, including our enemies, right? Now, we've come to chapter 9 through 14, okay? And I want to just reread one of the commentators who said, admittedly, there is much in chapters 9 through 14 that is difficult, if not impossible, to explain. However, certain ideas are rather clear. Now, I'm going to focus on the certain ideas that are clear, specifically the way that these chapters point to the Messiah. So we will focus uh, much on those sections. And again, much of Zechariah is comfort to God's people that his promise, his covenant promise to David from 2 Samuel chapter 7, God has not forgotten his covenant to David that there will be a king that will sit on an eternal throne. So, and with that, chapter 9, verses 9 through 11. I'm just going to read parts of this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Look at these promises fulfilled in Christ, right? This is pointing to the one true king who think about the fulfillment of this. Jesus, remember, from Matthew 21, rode into Jerusalem, not on a war horse, but on a donkey. He rode in proclaiming peace, to the nations. And when he rode in, they were crying out, Hosanna, meaning save now. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who who comes in the name of the Lord. Then what we find, there's there's a reference in Zephaniah to, because of the blood of the covenant, I will set your prisoners free. And it's later in Matthew in chapter 26 that Jesus turns to his disciples. He says, this is my body. This is my blood, the blood of the covenant that will be shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. And then what we also know is this king will return. The scriptures talk about his return, but it's not on a donkey. His return is on a war horse, according to Revelation 19, as well as the following verses in Zechariah, that he comes as the divine warrior in judgment against the nations. Also, salvation for his people, but judgment. Then, chapter 9, verses 16 and 17, says, on that day, now, 
that phrase on that day is repeated a ton in the rest of the in the rest of the chapters of Zechariah and it's referring to this day of the Lord again a day of judgment against the world a day of salvation for his people he says on that day the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people for like the jewels of a crown they shall shine on his land so now we have this image if you caught it talked about a flock this image of a shepherd who will rescue his people and we'll see this theme played out throughout the rest of the book but look at verse 17 for how great is his goodness and how great is his beauty i love that verse because this is christianity how great is his goodness how great is his beauty and this is something as the people of god we've got to be able to show the world the the truth yes but the goodness and the beauty of the gospel leads to beautiful lives lives that suffer no doubt but a beautiful life the shepherd theme continues in chapter 10 with the lord declaring his anger against the false shepherds because their people wander and are afflicted but God declares in verse 6, I'll bring them back because I have compassion on them. They shall be as though I had not rejected them, for I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. Then verse 8, I will whistle for them and gather them in, for I have redeemed them. Verse 12, I will make them strong in the Lord, and they shall walk in his name. Right, all this language of this shepherd whistling and calling his, his sheep in. And then we have uh, in the Gospels, Gospel of John, chapter 10. Jesus speaking of himself. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out his own, he goes before them. I love that. Goes before them in protection. And the sheep follow him for they know his voice. Then in verses 10 and 11. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verses 27 and 28. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one will snatch them out of my hand. What does it mean? to follow him think about the prayer that i prayed this morning my prayer this morning out of paul's prayer was very intentional for this what does it mean to follow him that we walk behind him in a manner worthy of the lord seeking to be pleasing to him bearing fruit in every good work meaning For the Christian, there is never a day of small things. All that we do, all of our work, all that God calls us to in devotion to him. Our lives completely in devotion to him. But look at what Zechariah reveals about this good shepherd. He will be rejected by his own flock. It's interesting. Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 and 13, talk about these 30 pieces of silver. Right? And these are, this is silver that's paid a shepherd for his wages. It's also the price, uh, according to the Old Testament, of a slave from Exodus chapter 21 and 32. 
Again, this points to the Gospels. Remember the deal between Judas and the Pharisees, that Judas would hand over Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And then the rejection continues. In chapter 12, again, Zechariah is speaking of this one who will come from the house of David, right? This kingly line of David. But verse 10, and I will pour out on the house of David, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. And John, Gospel of John, chapter 9, 34. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. This is after Jesus' death. And at once there came out blood and water. And then in 37, John is quoting this when he says, they will look on him who may have pierced. But what is the result of this one who was pierced for his people? Zechariah chapter 13, verse 1. On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. It was Christ's blood that was the cleansing fountain of forgiveness for his people. Now, hopefully you've caught this. I am amazed. Zechariah. So many references pointing to our Savior that come, that, that come to fulfillment in our Lord. Zechariah 13, verse 7, prophesied that this good shepherd would be struck down. Look at verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. That's later quoted in Matthew 26, verse 31. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But then this goes on to talk about how God will, as the sheep are scattered, that God will use this in, as a time, as a testing to refine his people, the church. And what we know that we do follow a suffering servant, right? God allows us to suffer. It's part of his plan. It's through the trials, the suffering, that he tests our faith so that we will draw closer to him. He will secure us in his love. Set our hearts and our hopes on him alone. We've now come to chapter 14. Martin Luther wrote a commentary on Zechariah. Here's what he said about chapter 14. Here, in this chapter, I give up, for I'm not sure what the prophet is talking about. So, I'm going to lean on James Montgomery voice. Presbyterian pastor in Philadelphia, uh, or pastor uh, 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, provides some helpful summaries. So, Chapter 14 begins, behold, a day is coming, right? You hear the day language, day of salvation and judgment, a day is coming. Then look at uh, chapter 14, verse 4, on that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives. Again, that took place in the person 
of Jesus. If you recall, Jesus was literally standing on the Mount of Olives after his death and resurrection when he commissioned his disciples to go into all the nations, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, proclaiming the good news of the gospel. And as Jesus ascended from the Mount of Olives into heaven, two angels were there and revealed to them that Jesus would return in the same way. Then we have verses six and seven. On that day there shall be no light, cold or frost. There shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening there shall be light. Now, Revelation 21, 23 through 24 speaks of this. And the city has no need for sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of the God gives light. And its lamp is the lamb, by its light will the nations walk. And then Revelation 22, 5. And night will be no more, they will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Then we have verse 8. On that day, living water shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. In other words, this water is flowing all over the place in all seasons. Throughout the Bible, living water is God's fountain, its stream of salvation and healing for the nations. Ezekiel in chapter 47 spoke of this water that would flow out from the temple. And then in Jesus, we see the very presence of God, the temple take on flesh. And what did Jesus say in John chapter four? In John chapter seven, I am this living water. And then what we see in Revelation 21, or uh, Revelation 22 verse one, then the angel showed me this river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. And then chapter 14, verse 9, and the Lord will be king over the earth. What did our Lord instruct us to pray? In Matthew chapter 6, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're praying for the new heavens and the new earth that God would reign. And then Revelation chapter 21, verses one through four, this never gets old. Then I saw new heaven, new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adored for her husband, heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He'll dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eye and death shall be no more, nor shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And then Zechariah ends in chapter 14, verses 20 through 21, with a description. It's, a, it's language like a temple. Everything where everything is holy Everything, including ordinary things, are dedicated to the Lord. All of life dedicated to the Lord. And this is the point. Zechariah 
shows this through pictures, through profound truth. God will save his people through this good king and this good, this good shepherd. And all of our lives are, are, to, be, are to be dedicated in his service. No day of small things. What Zechariah is doing is showing us an amazing God. He's our prophet. Jesus, our perfect prophet, revealed to us the way of salvation. He's our priest through himself, his own body, his sacrifice. He covered our, he covered our sins with his blood. Right? And he continues at the right hand of the Father to make intercession for his people. And as a king, he is ruling and defending. He is restraining and conquering all of his and our enemies. And then as a shepherd, I want to finish with this. Um, I want to finish with a story that I think sums this up. This is actually, I don't think I've ever shared it in here. This is my favorite story. Uh, And if I did, I have a bad memory, so you'll hear it again. Um, Jason and Andrea. Jason uh, is nine, Andrea is 11. They are, true story by the way, they are uh, swimming on vacation in a, in a lake uh, in, uh, got to get my states, states right, uh, in Florida, central Florida. They're swimming in this lake. Okay. So as they're swimming, Andrea, again, she's 11, older sister, looks up and sees an alligator beginning to swim towards them. So she frantically starts swimming for the shore, calling for her brother Jason to follow her. Okay, Jason starts swimming. The mom hears this commotion. She's about 100 yards up in the cabin. She looks down. She makes a dead run for the water because she, she recognized the danger of what's going on. So Jason is swimming, but the alligator goes under the water, comes up, gets Jason by the legs, pulls him under the water. But then the alligator lets him back up. Does this a few more times. Jason's able to come up to the water. He is dazed, right? He's bleeding, he's struggling, but still able to swim. So he's still swimming to the shore. Right as Jason's about to get to the shore, The alligator comes back up. It's behind him. This time grabs again. He already grabbed him by the head. This time grabs him by the legs. But at that exact same time, his mom is waist deep in the water. She reaches out. She grabs a hold of Jason. And guess who is not letting go? Guess who will not be able to be snatched out of her hands? So finally, the alligator lets go. She pulls Jason to the shore. Okay, Jason's bleeding, but he's going to be okay. This was later, uh, there's an interview later on Good Morning America, where Charlie Gibson asked the question, he's talking to Jason about it, and, you know, Jason's a little nine-year-old boy, and so, you know, He's asking about his scars. He's like, well, you know, do you brag to your friends at school and show them your scars, you know, kind of how cool they are? You know, scars on your legs, scars on your neck. Jason's like, those aren't the scars. And Jason holds up his wrists, and they're scars where his mom's fingernails dug in because she wouldn't let go. Scars on his wrists, those are scars of love, right, that saved his life. There are scars on our Savior, scars of love, 
that saved our life because as a good shepherd, he would not let go of his people. So what do we do with that? That picture of that mom pales into comparison of the love of our Savior who died for us. So what do we do? We raise our hands in praise of a good God. But we also, with the rest of our lives, we hold out our hands in service. No day of small things. Lord, how will you use me? No matter what God calls us to, Lord, use me. Let's pray to that end. Father, I pray that you would use us as your people. The work that you have called us in, in this world to strengthen us, that we would be faithful to you. Lord, we give you thanks that you are a, our, our perfect prophet, our priest, our king. You have fulfilled everything in the Old Testament. You have blessed us, given us all that we need to walk in a manner worthy, so help us to do that. Lord, also, I do pray for the needs. Um, think about the needs in our world with the Ukraine, uh, Ukraine crisis. Lord, please cause this war to cease. Pray for our brothers, our sisters in the Lord that are in Ukraine, that they would cling, uh, that find a community of believers, that they would cling, that you would help the churches, uh, strengthen churches who will be caring for the refugees. Um, Lord, pray, uh, we pray that you would be with them again in this war. I pray more locally, the people in our congregation that need you. Lord, I pray for Tim and Cindy Jensen, their granddaughter, Emma, 18, diagnosed uh, or with cancer, had surgery to remove a cancerous spot found in her right lung. Thank you that the surgery went well. Pray for her recovery, but I pray that you would heal her, strengthen and comfort her and the family in this time. And Lord, our continued prayers uh, for the Harvitz as they are uh, continuing just to battle cancer. Pray for Von Heck with his uh, long-term illness, Lord, that you would provide answers, relief. For Keith White, Ed's brother, uh, for his lung cancer, that you would be with him and, and you know the other needs in our congregation. You know where we're suffering, where we're struggling. Thank you that you are a God that meets our needs. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. And please stand for the benediction. And now receive this as the Lord's benediction. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And amen.